This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Welcome you to Bite Into It with Dan Salmon and Vanessa Tahoka. Welcome, Dan. Hello. Nice to see you. You too. Uh, it's lovely to be here this fine, chilly evening. Later on in the show, we are going to be playing uh, something that Laura Summers, one of our hosts, pre-recorded for us. It's an interview with Ethan Marcotte and Karen McGrain. So do stick around for that. We're also hoping to speak to a strategic planner from Vice. But, uh, you know, they're, they're pretty uh, in-demand people, the Vice team. So this may or may not come through. So let's cross our fingers. And uh, we may be speaking to Alice Kimberley about how millennials in particular are using um, social media. So, yeah, that could be pretty good. But before we get to that this evening, we really do need to address the fact that we are in the middle of an election cycle. Oh, and what a long election cycle it is. <laughs> I don't know about you, Vanessa, but I'm pretty sure that I'm done with it and we're only two weeks in. It's the shortest election cycle ever, Dan. <laughs> You're so nice to it. We need to work on your election stamina. We do. And I, and I love elections. I love politics. But at the same time, this is just infuriating me. Now, um, we're, we're being, you know, the tech show, we're talking NBN um, because it seems to be the political football of the last five, six years and um, there's a whole lot of uncertainty and the uncertainty has been added to with um, the opposition leader Bill Shorten pledging to bring Australia a first-rate fibre NBN if uh, Labor is to win the upcoming election. Now, um, for those of you who are playing at home and uh, may not remember, uh, the original NBN did have a fibre-to-the-home uh, model, so you were getting optic fibre direct to your premises. And at the uh, last election, when the uh, coalition came into power, they changed the uh, uh, structure to what is called a mixed technology model or a multi-technology mix. So that's a combination of uh, wireless and fibre-to-the-node, so uh, the last, you know, few Fifty meters of uh, cable to your house is the existing copper network, which, as we have been uh, well made well aware by government, is a lot cheaper, but at the same time, not as uh, quick speeds. It's as, also degrading, and, and degrading. degrading to the point that um, parts of it need replacing. Mm. So there are ongoing costs to that copper network support. Absolutely, we're talking, you know, hundred-year-old copper cable now, mm. and in some parts of the country, at the very least. So um, on a Monday on the campaign trail, uh, Bill Shorten was asked the following question. Uh, by a journalist whose name I cannot see. Um, <laughs> a first-rate fibre NBN, can I ask what that actually means? Is it fibre to the premises right the way through the system? And do you have any modelling you can point to that will tell us how much that will cost? Now, uh, according to the uh, article that we're reading right now, the opposi- opposition leader said that Labor will be announcing its NBN policy in coming weeks and it will be a good NBN policy. So I think we can all sleep soundly in our beds about that one. I, I think um, the journalist's question was quite astute in the sense that uh, the public have had to keep up with the changing definition of the NBN. And this is this is a real challenge. Uh, it's very hard to know what you're voting for when people just say, my NBN's better than your NBN. Mm. And then when you do get to the technocrats, uh, the explanations are quite dense. Uh, so, look, once there's a, a policy announced on this, we're hoping to be able to to talk about it and analyse it a bit and and give you a little bit of um, plain language speak about the NBN. So let's just keep our eyes wired for that. Absolutely. 
There was a, a cute little text story that, that popped up that I couldn't resist because it is about Qantas and uh, Qantas is moving to the cloud and there's just something really poetic about that. Uh, what having is having that? never spent time in the cloud before, Qantas <laughs> is finally moving They own it. the cloud, you know, they're well comfortable in the clouds but uh, they are moving their, their IT infrastructure to the cloud. Uh, so sounds like they are moving to uh, Amazon Web Services, uh, which is, you know, the, the market dominator in that space. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so the public-facing website that will move onto cloud facilities. Major banks have already done it. Government departments have done it. Um, so it's a pretty tested model now, and I mm. guess they feel confident doing that. Um, they're, they're expecting that the scale of the savings, which they'll make by doing this move to their IT infrastructure, is in the region of $30 million, uh, which is That's no a, small change. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Considering the uh, various financial troubles that Qantas have had in recent years, I'm sure um, it's, a, it's a welcome uh, change. I per, like. I mean, I, I've always. I know I shouldn't be because you know it's all very secure, but I still am skeptical of the cloud, despite the fact that it's you know well documented that it's you know secure and all of that. I still am always a little bit uncomfortable moving things into it. I think no matter where you're storing your your data, it's you know you've got similar security issues. The cloud issues are just slightly different, um, and as we've spoken before on the show, uh, there's often jurisdictional issues as well. Uh, but Amazon tend to handle that in quite a sophisticated way these days. Mm-hmm. It's um, and quite quite a simple way. You know, there's there's a lot of ticking boxes, and you know, do I want my data to be stored uh, in mainland China, for example? Probably not. Um, you know, do I want my data stored elsewhere? You know, where we've got uh, joint trade agreements and things <laughs> with, with other countries, and they respect privacy rights and yada yada. Then that's probably all right. So um, it's yeah, it's been really interesting seeing the the contractual changes in that space. Definitely. All right. Mm, Instagram. Instagram. Let's talk about design for a moment. (laughs) Um, Look... How do your eyes feel? So the story is that Instagram has changed their their icon. I would of like the app. so sorry sorry. I would like to know what it is with very popular apps in the last six months redesigning their logos and icons and making them absolutely hideous. Uber did it a couple of months ago. Instagram. I'm glad that someone at Instagram has discovered the gradient f- uh, <laughs> function on Photoshop, but it just looks horrible i know and, and you know i mean it, it's reflecting the an overall change to you know this whole flat icon idea where it's just a color with some lines on it which you know a lot of the time can look really good i'm in my day job at the moment we're redeveloping a few things and we're going to flat icons and they look great but not against a gradient of orange to pink to yellow instagram i'm sorry you failed I'm, I can't handle it, Vanessa. There are, there are um, a lot of fun audience reactions to the new Instagram logo on Twitter. Uh, one is drawing parallels between the uh, the gradient design and a pack of Durex Pleasure Me condoms. <laughs> Apparently, the, the scale of the colours is very close and, and they've sort of posted those so that we can see them. Perhaps uh, oh, wow. I should retweet that. Wow, that's, um, that, that, that's <laughs> uncanny right there. That's right. Um I guess they've uh, they've actually been criticised from a, a pragmatic point of view from other designers saying that gradient isn't really an ownable element of a design. Mm-hmm. So in terms of protecting their logo in the long term, that this might not be the best strategic decision, which That's is an interesting uh, bit of commentary. Interesting, especially considering I like I can't imagine the difference in terms of intellectual property between 
owning a gradient and owning like at a particular shade of purple like Cadbury chocolates do. I I mean I'm sure that someone with legal knowledge would be able to put me, set me straight there. If you do have uh, legal knowledge of why that's the case, feel free to tweet us at Bite Into It. One of our users has messaged us saying that Airbnb is also a terrible logo remake and that they weren't happy with that one. Oh, so the, yeah, the, the little A that looks like every other um, company that's company that's named always starts with an A as well. Like I've seen so many that look that similar. I guess. I mean, yeah. look, it, it seems like I'm re- reading up on, you know, the design, uh, I suppose, process oh, no. of um, the Instagram's new logo. And they they it, they started in the right place. They asked the whole company to draw the logo from memory in 10 seconds or less, um, and which gave them, a, according to um, uh, someone... <laughs> Uh, gave them a sense of what was burned into the memory as far as Instagram is concerned. And so that that became the basis on which, you know, distilling it down into something really simple, which sounds like a great idea. It's just, you know, the, the end, they didn't, they didn't land the, the, uh, flip particularly well. You know, what's funny is I, I actually quite like the colors involved in the logo because I used to have, you know, a slightly unattractive tan and brown logo mm-hmm. on my very colour-rich display of other app icons. And it did stick out in a strange way. It, did, it didn't fit in with the rest. And now I feel like it's a little bit more colour-rich. Yeah. You know, it fits know. in a little better. But somehow it's still displeasing to me. I know. It just it, <laughs> it looks like the backdrop to a school photo or something. Like from the nineties, but in its in its um, in its defence, we should say that the team uh, did have to think about how scalable the app icon was, of course. and that this has solved some problems for them. Which uh, apparently the old icon just wasn't wasn't that great at different sizes. It didn't look so cute and friendly and, and touchable. Yeah. Uh, so they're saying that this one this one works better. Well, that's the beauty of a flat icon. <laughs> that's right. Anyhow, that's that's plenty on uh, an icon. I, th- show, I, I think, think we've spent more than enough time. I on think that. we might move on from that. You're with Bite Into It with Dan Salmon and Vanessa Taholka, and now we are going to throw to an interview that our fellow host Laura Summers did with Ethan Marcotte and Karen McGrain when they were visiting Australia earlier this year. And I'll throw over to Laura now. I'm just sitting with Ethan Marcotte and Karen McGrain, who just completed an amazing workshop on responsive web design and development. So thanks for agreeing to talk to me. Oh, thanks <laughs> yeah. for talking to us after a full day of talking to yeah, us. Yeah, no, we're, we're happy to talk more. Absolutely. Just to start with, like, because you guys obviously have a rapport and you've obviously worked together for a long time. So out of curiosity, how long have you known each other and how long have you been working together? Uh, I think we've been formally working together about... Two and a half years. Two and a half years now. Yeah. 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 Between yeah. the podcasts and working on some client projects and yeah. Yeah. doing workshops and like doing, this for yeah. clients. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, known each other five or six years, yeah, maybe. Some, that sounds about right. Yeah. yeah. Speaking so. at the same events. Right. Yeah. Right. Like, that guy is smart. Right. Yeah. Right. I learn yeah. things from Karen every time she mm-hmm. talks. So, Thumbs yeah. up for that guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, not really, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm an enormous fangirl, and I think you're both amazing. And Ethan Marcotte, for people who don't know, is considered the father of the responsive web development movement. How did you guys both kind of come to this area of work? Like, what's your backgrounds? What drew you to working in the web, and then more specifically in working on responsive web? It's your fault. (laughs) (laughs) Never apologize, never surrender. I think you should go first. You have a more impressive CV than I I do. That's true. Did I change the entire web? I don't think so. Uh, you, you have. You've worked on most major redesigns I've ever looked at. I have been doing this for more than 20 years now. Um, I th- I'm one of the rare people in the industry that actually has graduate-level training in human-computer interaction and mm-hmm. technical communication. And mm-hmm. so... 
literally been a practicing UX designer and content strategist for my entire career. Mm -hmm. And yeah, this, this mobile thing happened. And I will confess for me, in many ways, it's been a bit of a Trojan horse to Mm -hmm. be able to talk about uh, content structure and the importance of, of that kind of architectural work on your content in a new way. And it's, it's a conversation that I can now have with, with organizations that maybe previously would not have seen the value of it, but now mobile sort of makes them go, oh, they have the light bulb moment around, oh, we need this structure if we want to be able to do these other things with our content. So mm. it's great. So do you think that it sort of initiated people to start thinking and designing and copywriting better copy for the web than before when we had desktop? Yeah. 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 I think the constraints of mobile are really Mm. a great thing. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. organizations that take the opportunity can genuinely make a better website if Mm -hmm. they make it responsive. Yeah. So thanks, Ethan. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, thank you. I mean, uh, Karen and I started working together because, I mean, she was always sort of involved in the discussions on digital products that would basically set up the design and build for success or failure if, you know, if they were not, you know, so basically like learning from her about like content modeling and content structure and strategies has been massively important um, because that invariably feeds into the responsive design process. So, um, I mean, I've been working on the web since the late 90s. I did not have any formal training in it. I'm a former literature student who just kind of fell into digital design. And, um, you know, I think similar to what Karen was saying, like, I think the rise of mobile was just like, it felt like an opportunity for us to kind of get, you know, visual design right on the web um, because we'd been designing these fixed width desktop sites for so long and just overloading them with stuff because we could. And so when we suddenly had to think about these screens that were 80% smaller than what we've been designing for traditionally, it was a really great way to kind of focus people on what, what really matters to the content you're designing, to the layout you're building, um, and kind of build up from there. So ultimately, I think it's so much more sustainable. Mm, not what can you include, but like what can't you live without? Right. Well, yeah, right. That's, that's beautiful. Yep. That's a good way of putting it. Um, do you guys know any stats like off the top of your head for what what's sort of the state of the web right now is for responsive versus fixed width? I'm sure Google knows. Like they have like right. mobile friendly ratings and stuff now, but I actually couldn't find anything that was like this is the clear state of the web for 2016 um, in terms of who's who's building responsive. And also, it's a big, ugly term, right? And there's a lot of levels of quality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So right. I guess that's that to me is the next stage. Like, how do we grade? How do we? Yeah. You know, or is there an accreditation? Do you get it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, um, I mean, the first part of your question is really interesting. Like, there's no clear stats on the number of sites that have gotten responsive. There have been a couple people, like I think Guy Pajarni has been trying to come up with an automated way of sampling like thousands and thousands of sites and trying to figure out which sites are responsive. Mm-hmm. That's a very robot-driven and kind of imprecise way of thinking about it. But he's got some rough stats on on how sites are doing. Um, yeah, I don't know. I haven't seen anything more concrete than that. Though. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think Ethan addresses a really problematic issue, which is that in an automated way, it's somewhat difficult to know if a site is genuinely responsive. Mm -hmm. I have seen studies where people have gone in and and hand evaluated. They'll Mm -hmm. take the top 100 or top 500 sites and evaluate by hand whether it's responsive or not. Mm -hmm. And even those, I think, are somewhat a little bit subjective. But I've seen numbers in the last year or so that have said let's call it 20% of the top websites studied are responsive, Mm -hmm. which to me suggests there's a huge amount of work still to be done. That there are organizations that maybe have MDOT sites or 
you know, have put all their money in a native app, but mm-hmm. have yeah. not fully built up their responsive platform. So. Right. right. And to the other part of your question, I mean, I think like the accreditation process for responsive design is really simple. I mean, I, you know, the original article just had like three simple ingredients you need to make to build a responsive layout. You can make a responsive site that's also incredibly heavy. You know, it's very slow to download. It's inaccessible, but it's still a responsive design. So I think, you know, to your point, like there's a whole other discussion about what constitutes a good responsive design, like a well-made, like a web responsible one um, that I think we're just starting to have as an industry. So maybe it's like responsive plus performance plus ease of use or something. Yeah, yeah. Equals good. Equals good. Yeah. Yeah. No, I do a lot of, uh, you know, when I talk about adaptive, I'm always on the lookout for people saying, like, we need to go beyond responsive design. Right. And uh, in many scenarios, what they're actually saying is, I saw a badly implemented responsive design. Mm -hmm. That must mean responsive design isn't good enough. You should use an adaptive solution. Well, that's just a flawed argument on several different levels, Mm -hmm. not least of which because just because you see one implementation that isn't perfect doesn't mean you should throw out the entire responsive baby. Just because one cat isn't even megalomaniac does not mean they are all. I don't know, I met a lot of cats. (laughs) Maybe it's a poor poor comparison. (laughs) Um, So just from like my experience in digital um, here in Australia, it feels like it's sort of no longer a big argument, like responsive Mm. versus fixed. But like from from your experience, would you guys say that it's like a done deal or do you think that a lot of people need convincing still? The clients that are approaching me, and you know, maybe yeah. I'm not the best person to ask about this, but you know, it's it's always sort of a foregone, foregone conclusion. Like, mm-hmm. we need a responsive website. It's mm-hmm. really a matter of figuring out how to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. I think people don't really contact us looking for anything else, right. but mm-hmm. I certainly have just out there in the wild encountered people who have said, "Oh no, we're going to do an M dot." Sure, and mm-hmm. you know, sure. I get all like, "Ah." Don't do that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think I, I definitely think when I look at people writing just sort of general web articles, there are, there's the sense that oh, I guess all you everybody's saying we should go responsive, but is that really the right approach? Mm-hmm. I think I think that debate is still alive and well. Yeah. Yeah. There are occasionally you do occasionally come across components or sort of design patterns that are things like. Um, you know, widgets or calculators or big tables, you know, things that are hard to get into small mobile screens. Sure. And that can be challenging. And then the question of like whether or not you're serving that content for those smaller screen sizes at all mm-hmm. or not can be can be fraught. But I don't think it sort of says therefore no responsive. It's just like that one thing is the hard thing you have to work yeah. out. Yeah. yeah. I think that's yeah. well said. Yeah. In many cases it's just because it wasn't designed for a small screen. So it, it always feels hard when you have to try to try, try to make something fit. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And yeah. It's about figuring out what the short-term strategy is for getting around that and then maybe coming up with yeah. a more mobile-first approach in the long run. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm fond of saying things like, you know, the user's goal is not to look at a giant comparison chart. Right. Mm-hmm. A user's goal is to be able to compare two products. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the physical, visual way that you present that information can be different on different form factors as long as the, you retain your focus on what is what is the task that the user wants to accomplish here. Mm-hmm. On more generous real estate, perhaps a comparison chart, you know, full width comparison table is the right way to go. Mm-hmm. Perhaps on a smaller screen size, there's another presentation or another interaction that would work better. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think that to suggest that there perhaps are different interaction models or different layout models that work better on smaller or larger screen sizes right. is in any way, you know, 
being a traitor to the cause of responsive design. In fact, no. I think that is exactly the conversation that we should be having, is how do we support the user in completing these tasks, even if the priority or the presentation of the information is a little bit different on different screen sizes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, just to wrap up, um, this is a bit of a dorky question, but you guys are like my web heroes. So right. do you guys have any role models or web heroes that you look up to or any sort of, maybe even in design or outside of the, the industry sector um, that you think inspire you guys in your in your daily practice? Can I say Karen? Of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah, can I say it's so great to get to work with Ethan? Yeah. Uh, what about you? Any design heroes? Um, I, I guess... Two women who I would who I would always cite for this. Um, one is Dana Chisnell, mm-hmm. who um, works for the United States Digital Service today, and I think has been really, really instrumental in uh, bringing better design to digital products in the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. Um, she's an amazing woman. Lisa Welchman is another um, name that I would mention. She's the author of a book on digital governance that came out last year from Rosenfeld. Um, She is seriously the smartest person I know working today on how organizations actually maintain and manage their website over the long term. So much of what we do is focused on, like, let's do the redesign, and then we do the ribbon cutting and we run away. She's the one who's really in the trenches talking about how organizations maintain that. And I, I think she's a fantastic person. So responsive web as a practice and a work type, not as a job that you get done and then right. finish. Yeah. 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 Cool. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Um, final question. What do you see for responsive for web? And do you have any predictions for the future? Anything, say, like in the next 10 years, anything that you see coming, um, uh, Internet of Things or responsive on, I don't know, in our toilets. Anything, anything crazy. <laughs> I'm just curious because, yeah. you know, like we all love to say, you know, de facto after the fact, like, oh, I, I saw that coming. But, you know, I'm, it's always good to ask the question, like, what do you see coming? What's yeah. on the horizon for you guys? Um, I think the thing that's like most interesting to me right now is like it feels like the web is kind of like undergoing its like biggest demographic shift in its very short history. Like the next billion people are kind of talked about. The the next billion people are going to be coming online and they're not going to be coming from developed markets. They're going to be coming from emerging economies using devices that are far less powerful than the ones that we use on a daily basis on really unreliable and slow networks. And I'm really interested in helping ensure that the web is accessible to them. Like, you know, it's like thinking about how those demographics are going to change the way we talk about our digital practice right now. So building lighter weight, more nimble websites and um, making our content more accessible rather than less. Like that's, that's really exciting to me. You mean no more like 60 megabyte websites? <laughs> yeah, maybe 59. We'll shoot for 59 or 58. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And Karen, anything, any ideas you've got? Yeah, I wasn't sure what I was going to say, but now I'm just going to say what Ethan said. <laughs> I, I agree. I find the the idea that McKinsey estimated that two to three billion people will come online in the next right. 20 years. Yeah. And the wow. idea that yeah. that we are going to be bringing the internet to people who have never had a desktop computer yep. is, and never will have a desktop computer, mm-hmm. to me is, is so powerful and so motivating mm-hmm. that... I think there's this sense of the promise of what the web could be, mm-hmm. and it, we always feel like it's a little bit out of out of our grasp. Yeah. But to have that be the promise and the potential, I think, is something really powerful to work for. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm, inspiring words. Thanks, guys. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me. Yeah, yeah. You, it's our pleasure. So lovely to meet you. Yeah, yeah. you too. Yeah. 
you're with Bite Into It with Dan Salmon and Vanessa Tohoka and we were just listening to Laura Summers speaking with Ethan Marcotte and Karen McGrain about responsive web design. Dan, had you heard of Ethan and Karen before? I hadn't. Um, to, to find out that these were, you know, the, the people behind it was kind of awesome. Um, so, so Ethan really coined the expression responsive web. Yeah. And, uh, as we just heard, Karen was working in the field for 20 years, mm. has been. And what was fantastic, I thought, was to hear how passionate she still is about it and, and how much potential she still sees. Absolutely. I think, uh, the, the bit that, uh, I kind of, kind of struck me was right at the end where she's saying, you know, there are, uh, however many billion people who will access the internet but never do it on a desktop and the the idea that that's going to be the mobile is going to be their only interaction with the internet really kind of makes you think we need to it needs to be done well and it needs to be done so that everyone can make the most of the future yeah in a really equitable way i guess is what we're looking at definitely yeah i i loved that she used the expression human computer interaction because um i did do a course in hci many years ago and uh my professor was actually from the states and he he challenged us in our first lecture this is probably about maybe 97 uh so it was in the early days of the internet we were using the mosaic browser and uh you know things were things were patchy out there and he said what is an acceptable time to wait for a web page to load now you have to understand like our modems were not good we were in the early phases and people were saying three minutes you know that sort of thing <laughs> and he said you've all been using the internet too long <laughs> and, and that was just hilarious within the context of the internet felt so fresh and new but we knew we were sitting on the end of lines waiting for it and that was on uni campuses mm. campuses were renowned for having the best internet access there was at the time well campuses and, and private facilities uh, so it was it was such a different world and it was very exciting to be talking with people about how to design a more usable tool uh, out of the internet and where we could have improvements and to see that we've come to the place where we've got incredibly smart devices now of all different shapes and sizes and that we're still you know eking out improvements here it i can see why um you could have a 20-year career in it and still be passionate absolutely so I have been following with great interest Edward Snowden's story uh, from NSA staffer to whistleblower and um, his relationship with Glenn Greenwald, who was the journalist who he decided he could trust in his um, capable use of technology to be able to hand over lots of documents in a, in a sort of semi-anonymous way at that point and then to communicate with him about how he wanted that information released. Now, The Intercept is the website that Glenn Greenwald um, publishes content through and they have a lot of partnerships with people. Uh, but they have released um, an article uh, just today all about how The Intercept uh, is going to respond to dealing with uh, big data dumps from other potential whistleblowers in the future um, because I guess they've been reflecting a lot on that process and what they could learn from it and how they might be able to do things better. So it's an area I'm really fascinated by because it crosses over into... Um, massive lots of data uh, into data security into anonymity into journalism and uh, I think it's it's pretty there's a lot of unknowns in this space at the moment and probably a lot of what we see decided here will map out some of the path of how we can expect these things to play out in the future so I think it's pretty significant um from the time that uh, The Intercept began reporting on Edward Snowden's archive of data, uh, they said that Snowden had two 
main requests that uh, two big asks from them. One that the materials be released in conjunction with careful reporting that put the documents in context and made them digestible to the public. So there was a real, you know, civic interest um, and a responsibility factor here. And two, that the welfare and reputations of innocent people be safeguarded. Now, you can already see that these are these are two massive asks, and especially when you're talking about the volume of documents that got leaked um, and that still haven't all been released um, from Edward Snowden's uh, sort of whistleblowing dump, that this is going to be a difficult task and you're going to need a lot more detail than just keeping innocent people safe mm. and making, making things digestible. Um, how do we know who's innocent? Um, what is safe? You know... How do you even begin to make sure that you've you've checked all your checks? Absolutely. Uh, so today, uh, the Intercept announced two uh, innovations on how they report on and publish materials, and they're trying to be um, very expeditious and informative about how they uh, make reporting possible, uh, but also trying to be quite uh, transparent about the framework with which they're going to deal with this sort of content. Um, So the first measure involves um, coping with the publication of large batches of documents. Uh, They are definitely going to be going with an instalment model for this sort of thing and probably announcing, right, we we have a leak, we've got this batch, um, we're not going to put them all out at once because we need to treat them responsibly. Here are some significant things. Mm. Um, And they're they're starting that with the uh, NSA's internal SID Today newsletters. Now, I'm I'm not... I haven't obviously read all of the leaked documents, but this seems to be one of the first ones where it's kind of like a, a, a um, I suppose, broadcast within the organisation kind of thing. So anyone within the NSA would have access to this rather than it being particularly classified for a particular security level. Yeah. So that that, that should be, um, I suppose, a different a kind of, I risk suppose, level. risk risk level. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and make, making it a little bit more. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think of what the word is, but yeah. In accordance, sensitive. That's yeah, the yeah, that's different right. level of sensitivity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, in accordance with the same sort of agreement that they have with Snowden, um, they are going to uh, include summaries of the content of each document as they're releasing these. Uh, they also are encouraging other journalists, researchers and interested parties to comb through documents along with their future published batches to find additional material of interest Um, because they realise, I guess, that they can only go so far and they'll only realise significance of so much. And that's, I guess, the massive issue with trying to cope with a really big data pool, especially quickly. So they're not... They're not even trying to pretend that they would be able to pick up every possible news story that would come out of this. And mm. uh, They've also said that uh, consistent with the requirements of their agreement with the source, their editors and reporters um, will carefully examine each document, redact names of low-level functionaries and other information that could impose serious harm on innocent individuals. And, um, and they have also given the NSA an opportunity to comment on the documents to be published. So they are going back to the source of the leak for the mm. last check, um, which is really interesting. Is, is that something... Do you know if that's something that they did previously? I'm not sure, but you'd imagine it's in a tremendously awkward uh, conversation where the NSA is clearly in the position where they're saying these documents should never be out there in the first place. Mm. How do we begin to have a conversation about what a responsible use of these documents would be when we think that no use is responsible? Absolutely. And it's interesting, I suppose, they, the, if the NSA 
did have an idea of uh, the magnitude of the original leaked documents, however many two or three years ago it is now. Um, they wouldn't have had time to kind of put together a strategy of responding to them, whereby now, you know, it is two, three years down the track. A whole lot of stuff is out there that's been incre- in, in exceedingly damaging to the NSA and they know that there is more to come. Mm. Perhaps they... Might Better have, to be forearmed and absolutely. yeah, be on the front foot with so, the with the partly the PR game and also the intelligence game, obviously. Definitely. Uh, so, another thing that the Intercept have said is that um, the partnership approach is really important to them because it can expedite the reporting and also ensure that stories that affect, say, specific countries or specific groups' interests um, are reported by journalists who best understand those either areas of interest or the countries that they're affecting. Um, but they're conscious that allowing journalists full access to the archive presented a lot of security and legal challenges and they have taken significant time and legal resources to resolve. They now feel that uh, they have a consistent policy and um, have checked where they stand on those sort of issues in a way that they can now... Um, they've begun to provide access to journalists from Le Monde, for example, and other media outlets... Um, in collaboration with the Intercept's editorial research, legal and technology teams. So it's a, it's a massive undertaking. <laughs> uh, they, they are saying that, look, there, there's a reason why we're doing this. There are, there are many documents that they consider of legitimate interest to the public that can and should be disclosed. But there are also documents that have been swept up within this leak that they believe should not be published because of the severe harm they could cause to innocent people. Uh, and it's, very interesting to hear them, you know, drawing that line in the sand. Absolutely, I and, mean, and important and helpful. Mm, and because I mean that that's largely the argument that has been put against um, the, especially the media organisations that have uh, published and reported on these, is that that they are putting people at or putting operatives or people who work for the NSA at physical danger or physical risk um, and to to say from the outset that they are choosing to not to publish certain things because they have put in these checks and balances is I suppose a preemptive way of stopping it's, that from happening. It's really a helpful sign too because you know you've got journalists who have a professional uh, code of conduct and um, sets of ethics and responsibilities and uh, are quite used to weighing up these ideas of, of balance and um, and public interest. And when we see leaks, as the leaks have gotten bigger and bigger over time, as as our, say, USB sticks and our, our DVD and everything can hold more and more data uh, and people, you know, are leaking more things, of course they're not going to have checked everything that they've leaked. It's not like years ago where you hear painstaking stories of people photocopying things and trying to blank out the parts that say that this is, you know, top secret and and that's how something's leaked and it takes years and years to, to leak something. Um, so that we, we knew that there was going to be an issue about dealing with the bulk of content uh, and this has to happen somewhere. There needs to be a filter somewhere uh, and it's it's great that they've said we're going to take on that responsibility and not be slack about it. And I guess this is an area where I would criticise WikiLeaks and say WikiLeaks have gone out there with some ideas that are really strong in theory um, about, you know, the sort of transparency that we want to see in the world and things that we should know about. But maybe from a resources perspective or for whatever reason, they didn't back up uh, that when they released their leaks, they would just release leaks carte blanche. Mm-hmm. And incredibly problematic. Um, it was always people like the New York Times and uh, what the Guardian, um, yeah. you know, pushing back and and sort of 
dealing with that. So important role to play. Watch this space, I would say. Mm, definitely. So um, this is it's, it's data news. It's it's not necessarily techie, but uh, it's a it's a lovely story of um, uh, a lake, a frozen lake in Japan. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly. Lake Suwa in the Kino Mountains um, has a ridge above it that um, is hidden uh, each uh, or it. it, it Daily temperature changes cause the ice of of the lake, which um, obviously being high up, it's a, it, free, it freezes and unfreezes, or thaws. I think is the word for unfreezing. <laughs> <laughs> melts, melts, it melts even, um, which uh, in turn um, hides and shows a ridge of mountain behind the lake. Um, and every year since 1443, the priests at the who live at the shrine on the edge of the lake have recorded the date that the ridge appears behind the ice. Now, um, that brings us to over 700 years later, they're still doing it. Um, in the first 250 years, they uh, recorded the ice ridge. Um, there were only three years during which the lake did not freeze. Uh, between 1955 and 2004, there were 12 freeze-free years on Lake Suwa, and between 2005 and 2014, there were five. So these um, very studious and um, I, I imagine very um, together uh, monks, Shinto monks, have uh, inadvertently been monitoring the climate of the planet for the last 700 years. Very helpful. It's very helpful, particularly as we um, slide towards oblivion. Uh, <laughs> It has been an unseasonably warm autumn. It has been. It has been. But so what's great is they've partnered with some scientists. Is that right? They have. Um, they've been uh, uh, looking as partnering with bird watchers and botanists and other observers of um, evidence of climate change. Um, so they're able to kind of, I suppose, cross-reference between, you know, uh, birds arriving and leaving at certain times of the year and um, uh, plant, uh, plants that might be uh, blooming or fruiting at different times. It's... Um, it, it, it's actually quite it's quite a beautiful uh, image, I think. Yeah. So now um, the University of Wisconsin Madison uh, is having a look at their data and also connecting it with uh, Finnish data uh, from the 1990s, uh, when he convened an international group of scientists to compare ice records across the northern hemisphere. So finally, the data has moved to a computerized form. And uh, I don't think it needed to. Oh, though, no, did it? no, no, no. It's great. It's great. <laughs> it's um, it's pretty exciting. Think it of, is. Think right. of the. The infographics you could have about this. I'm just, sick of the iceberg graphic. Now yeah. we can have the Japanese Shinto Lake. Oh, that would be amazing. Just, just so long as they don't cover it in a gradient like the Instagram logo. <laughs> oh, we would not let that happen. <laughs> All right. It's, um, it might be time to go to Weird News of the Week. It might be. Our, our semi-regular but unofficial segment uh, where, <laughs> where we talk about kind of funny things that don't fit in anywhere else um so one of the weird news is uh one of the weird pieces of news this week was that the <laughs> iraqi internet went dark for may 14th to 16th between 5 a.m and 8 a.m general mean time now why would this be this has happened uh once before the year before mm-hmm. now it turns out uh that an iraqi isp found out why uh, the whole country had gone dark and leaked it on facebook the reason is that the Iraqi government ordered ISPs to shut down internet access in the entire country to prevent exam cheating for Iraq's official exams for secondary and high schools. Uh, so <laughs> That's this, awesome. This seems like a very extreme measure to take. It sounds like something sure that- <laughs> we need in Australia. Did you hear about these uh, ki- kids, oh, I suppose maybe not kids, students at Deakin University who were uh, excluded from university for cheating this afternoon? No, I did not. Yeah, so don't, don't cheat Bring on it your home. Exam. Bring it yeah, home, Yeah, don't Dan. cheat on your exams, people. It's not good. Sure. 
sure, don't de- cheat on your exam, but I don't think that it's necessary to bring down the whole country's internet access to prevent this cheating. Having worked at a university in the past, I would say that it's almost warranted. All right, Dan, <laughs> and this is coming from people who know much more than I do. Let me introduce you to the concept of a jammer, a signal jammer. I think this might be a much more um, proportionate response to the risk of it, exam cheating it, students. It does feel like that you're <laughs> taking a sledgehammer to a... Um, to your economy for one. I was trying to find a metaphor, but that's about as good as you're going to get, I think. Yeah. Mm. So weird slash awkward. True. Yeah. Weird slash heartwarming news of the week. Um, Humans are replacing robots at Toyota. We're heading back to Japan um, in what seems like... Everything old is new again. (laughs) Everything old is new again. Um, According to Toyota, we cannot simply depend on the machines that only repeat the same task over and over again. To be master of the machine, you have to have the knowledge and the skills to teach the machine. That sounds fantastic. I love it. It's the way of the machine it's the way of the robot and then it's the way that people are always going to be better at some things than robots this is true and we go back to uh, human and computer interface yep hci Mm. we we love it i I love that the article is called rise of the humans um (laughs) after all the fearful articles they've they've written about rise of the machines this was quite refreshing i was actually reading that and i didn't even pick up on the thing i was like oh rise of the humans of course because the humans are well i suppose they're as dangerous to the planet as anything else aren't they yeah yeah I, i hadn't been feeling subjugated by machines so far but uh, you know, Bloomberg, it's a, it's a point of view. This is true. It's fine. Um, <laughs> I, I, it's it's funny. I feel conflicted about that. You know, uh, the Japanese do make the cutest robots out there. Um, I wouldn't have uh, Asimo doing anything differently. Definitely not. Yeah. But maybe Asimo's got too much personality. Last little bit of bite with Dan and Vanessa. And uh, we're up to events. Dan, what's on the uh, the agenda? Uh, Melbourne Webfest has announced the 55 web series chosen to be part of the official selection series for Melbourne Webfest 2016. Uh, Melbourne Webfest 2015 we, uh, last year was a great hit. Um, we did have Steiner Ellingson from the Melbourne Webfest in chatting w- uh, with the team. Uh, this year they will be presenting 23 awards and the nominees for each award can be viewed on the website. Um, they have selected also 10 Melbourne-made web series to be screened at the Spotlight on Melbourne event, which is on the 30th of June. If you head to melbournewebfest.com, you can find out more information about that. Great. And we'd love to say thank you to our guests this evening. Thanks to Laura Summers for interviewing Ethan Marcotte and Karen McGrain. And thank you for listening. A shout-out to our podcaster, Justin Petch. Good night. Bye. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.